Hello, and welcome to Romaniacs. It's day six of the Domergency, and the story has only gotten more outrageous. You may have heard our Emergency Romaniacs bunker crossover episode on Sunday, but if you're out testing your eyesight in a picturesque <laughs> market town, search the bunker on your favourite app. I'm Dorian Linsky, and joining me this week, we have Ian Dunt, editor of Politics.uk, and now officially Twitter's favourite journalist, <laughs> having vanquished James O'Brien. <laughs> Hello, Ian. How does, it f- how does it feel to be one of the, the beautiful people? <laughs> I mean, obviously, fantastic. I don't allow anyone to make eye contact with me anymore, of course. But, you know, apart from that, life continues unchanged. Um, what did was your reaction when Dominic Cummings rocked up late to his own press conference and just sort of sat there like a raffle ticket seller who hates everyone? Was that, <laughs> was that a power move, being half an hour? Like, and the little grudging, yeah, sorry I'm late, like no excuse, like... <laughs> I don't know. Just, I don't know, sloppiness. It just seemed like a weird thing where we had everybody waiting. And as you noticed on Twitter, you know, everybody filling, filling in time brilliantly on TV. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I wouldn't, it, we sort of get this thing in our head of we have an image of people and then all of their behaviour has to fit that image. And look, it, is, it is at least equally as likely that it, there were just some extremely chaotic scenes going on away from the camera at that moment. I mean, when you look at the statement that he brought out, it was so line by line. You know, there were many activities which were described by, by happening briefly at various points. It looked like you know, you'd had some people really sit down with that statement and think, you know, where have we been seen? What can we say? You know, what do we have to say? Given that, I don't think it's hard to believe that maybe every minute up to that moment was spent looking over that statement. So, you know, maybe it could have been, but there are also plenty of other things it could have been. Um, and you know, uh, presumably, some of these journalists from Westminster. Do you think they ask the right questions overall? Yeah, I, d- I mean, I, I know there's been a lot of criticism of journalist questions. I mean, it's not... Um, I thought some of them were great. Yeah, especially that day. I thought, you know, you're dealing with a document that's just been read out, um, you know, which has a lot of detail in it. You're, you're trying to pick up on it right there. People are quite nervous, by the way, in those situations, especially when it comes to press conference where you know that basically everybody's watching. Um, I mean, most of the questions I've seen from journalists, not just there, but at the Downing Street press conference, I think have been very good. I mean, the, the trouble is, especially now that it's virtual, is it's very hard to come back. You lose all of that human interaction that allowed you to just press your case to make sure you keep on being asked questions. And I mean, Boris Johnson has now stopped really taking any follow-up questions at all. And without a follow-up, it's quite hard to do any damage to really impose any scrutiny on these guys. But I, think, I think the behavior of, of the press over this thing has been quite impressive. And, you know, it also bears repeating that we wouldn't know any of this if it wasn't for journalists doing their job. Yes, that's, that's, that's the thing. Um, well, Helen Lewis is a journalist, a staff writer for The Atlantic, author of Difficult Women. Hello, Helen. Hello. Um, yeah, because one of the lines, we will be talking more in more detail later, um, but one of the lines that Cummings uh, tried to take, because it's a, it's a classic populist line, the kind of fake news thing, was to sort of attack journalists, while largely confirming what other journalists had reported that he'd <laughs> tried to keep quiet, and the most inaccurate account out there was the one written by Mary Wakefield and Dominic <laughs> Cummings. Did that, was that a bad line to take? I enjoyed that enormously. You can't read everything you read in the papers. Mm, mm, some of it um, I kind of disagree with um, Ian, actually. I know it's in a hard situation when you listen to an extremely long statement like that and you're trying to work out what's interesting about it. They were presumably without their phones. That's maybe one of the reasons they held it in the Rose Garden at the back of Downing Street is so that everyone had to hand their phones in. You can't get any, you can't see. It's always interesting when you watch a budget or something like that, the very different experience of watching it unfold on Twitter where you can already see the bits that everybody snags on Mm. versus watching it completely on your own and trying to work out from yourself. It's a good exercise to do if you want to test your news judgment. Um, Working out completely on your own what the things in it are that are going to be the landmines. But I have to say the instant he said, I got in a car to test that I was safe to drive. I just went, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> and not only did I get in a car, but I put my child in the car with me. Presumably the, the falsified version of that is, I, I, disco- I, I indeed discovered I was not safe to drive through the death of myself, my child and my wife. And you just think, that's it. At that point, you could just, I, I just feel like, because obviously the, you know, the entirety of the media is being run out of my house at the moment, because I've got my partner downstairs, who's um, news editor of the, at the Guardian. Um, and I was just like, that business about the eye test, that's it, isn't it? That's the, that's the headline. What, like, it's, it's one of those things that's so weird that everybody's going to remember it. But, and also, we're so lucky to have that because it's based around one retired chemistry teacher noticing his number plate right? and, and, and having evidence that he Googled it at the time. 
And, and as, I mean, I think you tweeted this, Dorian, about the fact that the fascinating thing about this guy who's like, the thing is, I just understand, I'm, I listen, you know, that bit in the James Graham um, drama where he listens to the heartbeat of Britain. That <laughs> like, this is the guy that can't realise that people will find it funny if you say I got in a car to test whether or not I was safe to drive. That's really funny to me. And then the other bit is about having a distinctive number plate. I've become obsessed over the last couple of days about whether or not it's like, is it like classic Dom, but the L is a one and the Dom, the O of Dom is a zero. <laughs> if you've been brought down by having a hubristic number plate, because that would just make me so happy in kind of like, that's your nemesis. The fact that you've decided to have a hilarious personalized number plate about how brilliant you are. Joining us this week is Claire Hanna, SDLP MP for South Belfast. Claire, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. You were, last time you were on was early 2019. When was that? That was five millennia ago. Yes. It was very long ago. <laughs> um, so the Stormont Assembly had only just reopened after three years away when the coronavirus hit. Um, at what, you know, so it's sort of gone into the deep freeze again. What, what was the sort of uh, state of the alliance between the DUP and Sinn Féin at that point? Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say three years suspension. And I suppose the, the, the thing that broke it was the December election. And in pretty great numbers, people... Uh, kind of cast a judgment on that. Basically, um, ironically, it was a health crisis. It was it was the state of um, health after three years of backed up decisions um, that probably influenced that December election, as well as genu- generally just a, a build up of annoyance of everything um, being allowed to drift. And I think that is what bounced the parties back to negotiation um, and into the assembly. But yeah, they were really only getting out of the blocks um, and it was up and running about six weeks when uh, when this hit. And it's fair to say um, they were really bad at the start. And I think like it was a lot of proxy war about how it needed to be an all-island response and an all-UK response. And there was a lot of kind of solo running and stuff. But to be fair to them, and I'm not, um, you know, profligate in my praise for DUP and Sinn Féin, they've kept the show broadly on the road. They haven't, I mean, there have been big issues around PPE and nursing homes and stuff, but it hasn't been as catastrophic as I think some of us thought. Oh my God, they're going to sectarianize this and they're going to uh, they're going to make it worse. But um, well, so far, so not quite good, but not terrible. This week, trouble for the Londis Lex Luthor. How will Cummings get out of it? <laughs> and with Boris Johnson going to bat so strongly for him, does the Prime Minister feel he can govern without his pet brain? Plus, we will speak to author Tobias Jones in Italy about his country's slow recovery from coronavirus and to Claire about Northern Ireland. But before that, a quick announcement about our next Zoom live stream with The Bunker. It's happening on Thursday, June the 11th at 8pm. It's exclusive to Patreon backers. If you'd like to join us for a fun hour of drinks, conversation, recrimination and audience questions, then why not sign up and support us on Patreon? You'll get instant access to the live stream. You'll get the podcast early and without ads. And of course, mugs, t-shirts and all that good stuff. Search Patron Romaniacs and join our continuity resistance movement. First, uh, a fun fact from listener Stuart St. John, it's not Alan Partridge. Um, <laughs> Barnard Castle is apparently 19th century slang for a bad excuse in a still worse cause. <laughs> so, um, so maybe he's trying to, Cummings is trying to send us a message. So after an exciting weekend of cat and mouse with the media, our favourite Megamind thought he'd close down the story with a classic non-pology in the Rose Garden. So fast. Let's have some fun with numbers. A JL Partners Daily Mail poll found that 66% of people thought he should resign, including 55% of Tory voters, while similar numbers disbelieved all of his excuses. I think something like 9% believed the uh, eye test story. According to Comres, the government's net approval rating has plunged from 44% two months ago to minus 1%, and a YouGov poll has slashed the Tory lead over Labour from 15% to 6% in just one week which is the biggest fall in a decade. Well done, everyone. Um, Ian, as, as, as Helen sort of hinted earlier, Cummings loves to position himself as someone who understands the ordinary man or woman in the street, unlike the elite liberal media. Um, has his finger slipped from the pulse somewhat on, the, on this issue? Like how, how, how has he misjudged this so badly? The culture war doesn't work for him right now. Um, before, I mean, this is the weird thing. I think it's, it's, it really is very strange as a period for Remainers because, I mean, none of it seems to have really changed in terms of 
the, the kind of attitude that they have, the, the quality of the lies that they deliver and the, the aggressive manner in which they do it. That's the same shit that we've been looking at for four, four or five years. You know, I mean, th- this stuff is him saying, I've got to get in a car to test my eyesight is, is no worse, really, no more insane than many of the things he came out with over Brexit. The difference is there's no tribal defense anymore. You're not in a situation where half the people are ignoring all of this kind of content. You're, you, you're actually dealing with something where everyone has a universal experience of it and is severely affected by it, whether it's inconvenience or actually the sort of acute trauma and tragedy of not being able to be with your parent when they die. So on that basis, he hasn't really changed. It's just that none of it works in this scenario. And I think that also sort of helps explain why it's such a strange emotional feeling watching, watching it happen if, if you're a Remainer or just someone who, you know, who never liked him because it feels simultaneously outrageous but also kind of quite delicious, you know? So it's, you, you sort of get caught in this discombobulated... It's like someone splitting up with you over like a Michelin-starred meal, basically. At the same time, you're experiencing these two things at, at, at the simultaneous moment. Now, presumably, the people he really needs to convince are Tory MPs. One minister, Douglas Ross, has already resigned over it. We've got about 40 MPs, I think, at the moment, and rising, the one him to quit. Uh, that still leaves about 300 of the buggers. Um, how do you think the mood is... And that's 40 that have gone, uh, gone public with their, with their criticism. Apparently, there's many more sort of playing the seat. Do you think that he is going to retain enough support from I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought so. And I, it seems to me that most of this dynamic is taking place in their inboxes. I mean, so you were talking about the polling earlier. I mean, what I think, I think for that Daily Mail poll was 87% of people said that they, you know, read a lot about this and looked into it. And of course, when you look at that Daily Star front page with the mask of coming to his face, when you look at even, you know, graffiti that people are posting on Twitter or people talking about it, it seems to have like proper, proper cut through. In fact, one of those posters said he'd never done a poll on anything that he found such a uniform reaction to. On that basis, I mean, you're going to just, you know, politicians, you know, they, they, they are ultimately about self-preservation. And if you get an MP and, and deliver a lot of emails, not from campaigning groups, not from usual suspects, not from died in the walls of Remainers or Leavers or, or whatever, um, that actually seem to be outraged and losing faith in the government over an issue, then th- their first reaction is going to be, okay, well, what can we do to kill the issue? And the government has succeeded. I mean, not only has it not cauterized it, which it could have done pretty easily, frankly, by him just apologizing and or resigning, you know, for what, six months a year. It didn't. It basically doubled down. Boris Johnson staked his own, basically his own judgment on it and then brought in the rest of the cabinet and shackled them around that judgment. So on that basis, it, it, it's sort of not surprising that MPs, regardless of their political persuasion or anything else, are thinking, I, I don't know why you're doing this. No, you know, th- those numbers that we're seeing publicly definitely won't be the full extent of the actual feeling in the Conservative Party against them at the moment. I mean, I suppose there are probably, and, and they probably reside in the Tory party, MPs that aren't connected to their inbox necessarily, who maybe just get a summary at the end of the day or week. But as Ian said, it isn't. Uh, you know, the auto-generated ones where people have put in their postcode. I know here where I've been fairly clear uh, in the media and on social media how I feel about this issue, I've still got, I think, about 70 or 80 individual emails where people in many cases have given, you know, their experience of lockdown and a sacrifice that they have made and and outlined just how let down um, they feel and are really quite determined that something will be done about it. And it isn't Uh, as you say, coming from partisans. It isn't coming from people who are just using it as an excuse for a kick. And it really does, whether it's on this issue or others, it it gets into your head, absolutely. Now, I'm not saying that I or others are or should be just reactionary. You know, if you get 100 emails, you're like a remote control device and you'll go and do something. But it will undoubtedly, um, those who um, aren't total hacks, it will be playing on their minds and they will be desperately seeking something to go back to those well-crafted, well-thought-out emails without just saying, you know, we won, you lost, get over it, or or, or whatever the normal response has been. Um, and as you say, the fact that kind of whatever 40 have put their heads above the parapet, it, it, it definitely affects you. If you're worth your salt, maybe if you're sitting somewhere with, you know, a majority of a million or something, um, they just won't care. But certainly you'd imagine those, those new guys who are in uh, marginal seats will, will want to care about it. 
Um, Helen, Claire's talking about the fact that it's it's not just the sort of pro forma letters, that these are a lot of the time personal testimonies and letters pages and the Guardian to the Mail have been full of these sort of heartbreaking stories. Do you think the biggest tactical error for Cummings to suggest that any loving parent would have done the same thing when most didn't and therefore making people feel like mugs if they obeyed what they thought the rules yeah, were? Yeah, and he's upset one of the biggest and most terrifying constituencies in British public life, which is grandparents right grandparents <laughs> god dear do they love seeing their grandchildren or what like and they haven't been able to for two and a half months you know they're like, even like new babies being born you know i've just been watching 30 rock and there's a whole bit where they end up scripting an episode of the telenovela to, to, to try and win over alec baldwin's girlfriend's grandmother and there's a whole bit where like would you like to come over to my house and look at picture of my grand grandchildren and then we'll make sweet love and it's like this is the catnip to that generation of of women and i just thought no you can't you can't slice people up like that and the other thing I think if you think about populism like hypnotism right hypnotism you can hypnotize people and like make them dance or do silly things you cannot hypnotize people to make them go and do a murder there are just fundamental blocks in people's minds that you cannot push them over and to do and that's the same problem with populism and actually one I mean I go back to this article all the time Matthew Paris wrote a piece in the spectator having a go at Daniel Hannan I'm always up for that obviously saying you know your version of Brexit which was libertarianism, an Englishman's, you know, house is his castle, like we will be free from the, you know, the jackboot of Brussels, could have got whatever it was like 15, 20% of the vote. So you had to yoke anti-immigration sentiment onto it to get you over the line. And that's the mistake that they've made here is that Boris Johnson also comes from that instinctive, like you, you can't bend our bananas, you can't tell me what to do. You know, I don't, you know, I don't obey your laws. School of libertarian kind of Tory rightness. And that is so far away from the mood of the country, like to an extent that surprised even me, that people were getting like basically begging to be locked down. They fundamentally wanted the government to protect them. They felt scared and they thought, you know, they, they didn't want to go to restaurants. They didn't, you know, they were, they were angry and anxious about that. And that's the thing I think is their version of populism has profoundly misjudged this moment because the kind of Toby Young caucus is all, I'm a lockdown sceptic, maybe we should do what Sweden is. And that is so far away from where the majority of British public opinion is. It's not true. So I think the problem is that they thought, we're the master kings of populism, we press the button, we know what people like. And in this case, they really, really don't. But aren't you feeling a sort of therapeutic aspect to this as well, which is I, I've always been a Dominic Cummings is a genius sceptic to some extent. Um, you know, I think he's incredibly self-mythologizing. And I think basically he had the same insight as the US Southern strategy, right, which is that you can press anti-immigration buttons as long as you don't make people feel queasy about it. You know, that whole, you know, I don't say the N-word, I say busing was the version of it in the US. And, you know, we don't say immigration, we say Turkey's joining the EU. Um, and, you know, and I, I don't think that's a necessarily... I mean, it's it's a it's a valid political insight. It, it it definitely worked. He certainly got a knack with coming up with, with with strat you know with with slogans. But my my question has always been about this sort of treating him with this sort of reverentialism just because he writes incredibly long blogs and he's heard of Sun Tzu and he 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 mentions physicists and and there has been a kind of backslapping kind of you know um it, it, it buying into this mythology because not apart from anything else but i think by lobby journalists because it makes incredibly good copy right you'd rather have the idea that the government's being run by some kind of you know einstein in a t-shirt covered with spaghetti hoops than you would that it's just some guy who's pretty good but like you know quite boring which is what it has been until now and that's been that's been quite therapeutic for me is 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 as is, is is people have been a little bit less willing to swallow the the thing is, he's just playing 12-dimensional chess that we don't understand. It's like he has some good ideas, some bad ideas, like most people. Well, the fear, um, Helen, was that, uh, I think around the time of the election, was the Tory party might sort of become as sort of supine as Trump's Republican Party, um, and that they would all just be loyalists. Now, the cabinet ministers, who are sort of trotting out the on message, are definitely de debasing themselves. But the, there still seems to be a lot of resistance from the uh, back benches. Does that is that kind of a good sign that actually the Tory Party isn't just the sort of craven uh, follow the leader? I think it's an incredibly good sign. I mean, I keep thinking about the French presidential primary, right, where Marine Le Pen was essentially kept out by the fact that the, the other Conservatives would rather have had a centrist like Macron than they would have had the, the far right candidate in. And it's the duty of, just as it's the duty of the left to police its border, it's the duty of the right to police its border and police itself, because there is only so much that you know, you can do external opposition can do. And, you know, as you and Ian were saying, the only people who 
who's in whose fate Dominic Cummings, you know, their hands is is, is Tory MPs. Um, it's notable that Keir Starmer didn't join in an opposition meeting ab- about getting rid of him. And there was a great quote this morning about, you know, someone, I can't remember which journalist it was, phoned Labour and said, you know, who's doing your media round for you? And they replied, Michael Gove. And just like letting it be blue on blue is absolutely the way to take this if you're an opposition party because Labour attacks the Tories. Well, yeah, okay, it's a day ending in why, but you have to kind of let this the, the Tory party have this this fight amongst itself. Um, I mean, I'm not surprised about the, about cabinet ministers. I mean, I think you I think you might be a bit more of a fan of Rishi Sunak perhaps than I am. He seems to be a very competent chancellor, but. He took that job specifically when the, the deal was you are merged essentially with number 10 and a wholly owned subsidiary of number 10. You you don't have the traditional might the Treasury had under Gordon Brown and had under George Osborne, although he, both of those, well, I was going to say both of those worked very closely with their prime ministers. Yes and no. Um, but, you know, he, he took that job knowing that he was, you know, very much not the, you know, the majestic chancellor of old. He was, he was, he would do what number 10 told him to do. So it's not a massive surprise. Gove has been fun, hasn't he? Just psychologically, like watching him on LBC, there was a moment, you know, because Gove, he will say anything. Like he will fucking say anything for the things he does. There's a point then on LBC where he gets asked, have you also driven to test your eyesight? And he fucking instinctively starts saying basically, yeah. And then you, you can almost see the moment where he's like, Am I fucking doing this? Am I just going to say that I like? It's actually you, you. Actually, for a second there, saw like a flicker of humanity, and then obviously it, it, it went. But I find Gove fascinating. I mean, you know, it, it, we owe Michael Gove for the rise of Dominic Cummings, right? He he wouldn't exist without him. It was him taking on to the Department of Education and basically saying, "Look, here's this left wing establishment. We want you to smash it." Uh, you know, that's what you do. Um, and tolerating, you know, this is the guy that David Cameron said was a career psychopath. I mean, it's. <laughs> As it turns out, there are a few more stops on the CV after he after he said that. But but the, I, I find that relationship between the two of them because Michael Gove is incredibly courteous. Um, you mm-hmm. know, just does not get aggressive. I mean, I mean, maybe it's passive aggressive, but he doesn't do that game at all. His whole thing is to layer on sort of syrupy charm, and then he he's got the kind of bulldog working for him. I find them a sort of fascinating pair. There was a quote in the FT, I think it was one of Seb Payne's stories, saying, you know, and Gove is the only one actually that that, that Cummings respects. And I think that's probably true, actually. The only one he thinks maybe might even be cleverer than him. I mean, if he thinks anyone is cleverer than him. Ian, to end on on, on a note of, of less schadenfreude, um, I mean, and, <laughs> but this is, a, this is a political crisis inside a health crisis and the sort of attempt, the botched attempt to fix the former has made the latter worse in that mail poll, which I seem to be advertising essentially, unpaid. <laughs> um, 65% said that Cummings actions made it less likely that people would follow lockdown rules. Uh, several police officers were saying sort of similar similar things that people literally mentioned Cummings' name to explain why they were uh, ignoring the, the rules. I mean, how can the government fix this? Can it, can it, will it have to have, an, a, you know, another kind of messaging push or can it only fix it by removing Cummings? I honestly think that you would have to remove him because by virtue of keeping, it's not so much the thing of him, it's the fact that his message then has to turn into government policy because government policy has to accommodate the actions which he took which is why you could hear the housing minister, you know, Wednesday morning out there basically hedging himself over whether people with symptoms should be going out in the car. And he's like, well, I mean, it, it, at the core of your entire message was the fact that people with symptoms should be staying at home. So on that, the entire thing sort of tends to fall apart just in terms of accommodating his narrative. So you do have to get rid of him. And it doesn't look at the moment that things could change. I mean, they really... You know, there, there is just this part of you. This, this can't really be true, right? Given what you're seeing, you can't really keep him. But there's no hint at the moment that number 10 is going to change. I would just put like this little note of caution, because I think what it does at the moment, it's mostly lots of people seeing lots of people around. So it is anecdotal. But at the moment, you, you are, I myself am, and lots of others are seeing a lot of people going out there. And I think we're at the point, because these things are coinciding, of thinking that's all to do with him. And, and definitely it's having some kind of effect. I mean, I think that's exactly right. It's really hard to untangle correlation and causation here. It's, exa- it's also a narratively possible that people see this one guy getting a massive shellacking for breaking lockdown rules, becoming public enemy number one, and think, mm-hmm. I really don't want mm-hmm. that to be me. 
Whereas <laughs> the small percentage of people who were taking the piss anyway, now they've got a ready-made excuse that they offer anyway. So what, the, the interesting thing about that survey data is, is asking people whether what they think will happen. I would probably wait for a couple of weeks until we've got the data about public transport use, about you know whatever it might, all the other things, indicators that will actually show what's happening. Yeah, the, the same. I mean, all along, the problem has been that there's no room for micro-messaging, you know, that you can't say, but obviously in this scenario... But, and I'm, I'm sure it's the same for other MPs, the queries have kind of been coming in waves. But for the last couple of weeks, while most people are still bought into uh, the concept of social distancing, now as as bits part to, start to ease, there are nuances. And I suppose those who were wanting already an excuse or maybe looking for a little bit of a grey area in order to restart part of their business, they have been given that. I mean, I'm sure it's the same where you are. Our regulations are slightly different, but people have been prosecuted and, and fined and so on for for making short drives and for all that kind of stuff. Fines have been handed out. And obviously all of those people will be uh, seeking to appeal them or, or potentially not accepting them. So it's just it's lost the social solidarity aspect and people are saying, oh, well, why should we obey it? And you're going, you should obey it because you're not a sociopath and you want to protect yourself and your family and your community. And I think most people are still bought into that. But that was the glue that was keeping, you know, the whole the whole system going. And now anybody who is, as you both said, getting a wee bit bored of it kind of has the thread that they can start to pull. Well, then the grey area kind of thing is really dangerous because we've already known that more black and minority ethnic people have been getting um, stopped for breaching lockdown rules by the police. So as soon as you in, uh, you put any element of interpretation in it, any arguability, it's like drug laws. It's like, you know, posh white people will get away with flouting them and poor and black people won't. And, and that's really worrying to me as well. Um, so just to wrap up, it's Wednesday lunchtime. Um, do you think Dominic Cummings will still be in post this time next week? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say yes, but I, you know, I'm my I, my prediction record. Maybe I'll get, hang on a minute. Can I be allowed in? Can I be allowed in to edit this? I like the Dominic Cummings blog so that I can whatever <laughs> I seem incredibly prescient. No, Dorian. Ian, no, he won't. Get, yes, Dorian. Yes, he if will. You just say yes and no. Yeah, <laughs> it, Ian. Uh, I think he probably will, but I wouldn't want to put money on it. Claire, as an MP, are you even allowed uh, yeah, to play I, this I game? Yeah, I think he will be. And I mean, clearly at the start, I thought, oh, they'll they'll put him in a think tank or something. Uh, so they could have, they could have, you know, got out of it. They could have sacked him and he still could have shown up to prop up Boris Johnson all day, every day. But no, I think he'll still be there. I think they're going to try and brazen it out. This week we're also joined by Tobias Jones, journalist and author of books including The Dark Heart of Italy, Blood on the Altar, and most recently Ultra, The Underworld of Italian Football. He lives in Parma, Italy. Hello Tobias, how are you? Hello, I'm okay, thank you. You've documented uh, your lockdown experience for, for The Guardian um, in, in kind of, and, and a lot of sort of mixed feelings there. How do you feel now that it, it, it's sort of um, opening up? I think, I mean, there are sort of two different sides to that. One is me personally, I suppose, and the second side of it is trying to gauge the mood of the country. And in terms of the second, I think it's almost like a feeling of post-trauma, that the, the wound cut so deep in those horrible weeks when there were sort of close to a 1,000 deaths a day, um, you know, eight, 900 deaths every 24 hours, that almost now the government says you're allowed to do this and that, there's there's great caution. Um, me personally, I think, uh, well, it's, a, it's a complicated, isn't it? I, I, I personally worry that, that we're going to have a second wave, that it's going to be very hard to find a middle way between what used to be normality and lockdown and to describe to 60 million people in a country what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do is going to be very, very tricky. Well, we're, yeah, we're, we're finding that now. Have you, I mean, because some sort of hairdressers and bars and restaurants have reopened, which, is, which of these facilities have you felt comfortable going into? I mean, I would feel comfortable going anywhere. I mean, I sort of, my, my, my life is risky and I, you know, as long as I've got, uh, you know, everyone here wears a face mask, 
if you go into shops, you're asked to, you know, cleanse your hands immediately mm. in almost all shops or put on gloves. I mean, I went clothes shopping with my wife on Saturday and there were only two people allowed in the shop at once, which, you know, if you're in a small boutique shop, it's fine. If you're in a huge, a huge one, you know, it's almost a cue to, to get yourself a clean pair of socks or whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I don't worry unduly, partly because I think most people, I mean, you know, Palmer is 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 a well-ordered, quite bourgeois city and, and, and people are, you know, obeying the guidance on the whole. Um, but I know there's a, a huge amount of, of nervousness, you know, the generation above us, um, you know, my mother-in-law, for example, you know, people in their seventies and eighties, it's a different, it's a different thing. Italy was definitely the one the the sort of the big one first. I mean, after, after, after Asia. And it was the one that sort of, scared a lot of people uh i think elsewhere and thinking uh, you know are, are we next did it feel uh like italy was you know was sort of alone in that was sort of particularly ex- extreme so early did it did it feel that the kind of the sort of the eyes of the world were on you a bit yeah it did um it's it, it's funny how it sort of went in waves and how those waves sort of became almost identical in other countries so we had you know, we were clapping the medical staff and singing songs from the balconies. And there was almost this sort of defiance and we're going to get through and, um, you know, we're going to get to know our neighbours phase. And then, you know, once the kids haven't been at school for a month and then for two months and the deaths are going up and you haven't seen your relatives or your mates or been to the bar, then it sort of, it just became pesante as we'd say it's just yeah heavy it was just quite dark and that early phase I remember you know I wrote it in articles I was tweeting about it I just kept saying to people you know we were watching the Cheltenham Festival going ahead or Liverpool Atletico Madrid going ahead thinking this is bonkers because by then we were already you know uh, the kids hadn't been at school Um, we weren't allowed to leave the city we, we'd seen a lot of deaths and we're thinking, what on earth is Britain doing? Well, you made a really interesting point in one of the um, articles uh, about, I suppose, the, the pernicious role of national stereotypes. And, you know, this assumption that sort of Italy, which is, you know, can sometimes have this reputation as a fairly dysfunctional country, I think particularly with the, uh, you know, when Berlusconi was in, in charge, Um and and there was almost, you know, you suggested that there was almost a, a kind of arrogant assumption from other countries. It was just like, well, of course, Italy, you know, can't get a grip on it, but we'll be fine. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, exactly. It was it was really interesting because you can see through. I mean, a lot of people have deleted their, you know, their blog posts and their tweets saying, you know, we're comparable European countries with similar populations and demographics. And, you know, we've had 12 deaths and they've had 18,000, you know, and there was this sort of, ah, I don't know, jaw dropping arrogance that we're immune somehow. And, um, and, 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 and the Italian handling of the situation, which has been far from perfect, was actually decisive and most rarely for Italy, uh, shared, you know, it's, um, sorry, my English is so bad sometimes. I spent my whole life talking in Italian. I would say condiviso. You know, it was this, everyone understood why the decrees were, 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 were being put out and what they had to do. So there was a kind of a clarity to the messaging. I think other countries thought, no, the Italians have just, have just made a mess of things. Um, so why, why, why certain countries thought it wouldn't happen to them? I don't know. There's, there's a sort of, there is a a sort of form of group denial, isn't there? Well, yeah. And also I suppose in some cases, a sort of exceptionalism, like, well, we're better. Um, clearly not the case in Britain, as we've now seen that we've overtaken Italy some time ago as the worst hit nation in Europe. Um, we've seen recently this uh, government's approval ratings um, are plunging. 
you know, it is quite sort of volatile early on. You get this rally around the flag effect, but then it can kind of, it can go down. What's been the general view of the, of the politicians in, in Italy? And what's it done to sort of Italian politics, the status of the government, the status of the opposition parties? Well, it's interesting. I mean, Giuseppe Conte was sort of, you know, he's, he's a law professor. He's one of these technocrats who not a, not a politician. And he was sort of originally brought in as prime minister to sort of, everyone thought he'd be the puppet that whose strings were going to be pulled by Luigi Di Maio of the Five Star Movement and Matteo Salvini of the League. Since then, last summer, Salvini, you know, tried to pull the plug so he, he could he could get the top job and was was sidelined. And the and the left wing party, the the Democratic Party, came in with a Five Star Movement, keeping Conte in power, and he sort of. He's, he's, his approval ratings have been mostly horizontal, if not going up quite steeply occasionally. He's handled this, you know, his, his announcements have been odd, you know, so he's done sort of 11.30 p.m. Facebook live broadcasts. <laughs> um, and, you know, the situation has evolved so much that there have been a lot of repeated decrees. Um, so, so you know, it, it has been confusing for the public. But his approval ratings are, you know, are holding strong. What's what's really happened is that the league has has sort of plummeted. It's been it's been sort of flip flopping around, um, and various things play into that. So one is Euroscepticism. You know, Salvini flirts with a lot of neo-fascist parties. And with all sorts of different policies, including, you know, it's all the Euro's fault. Something else that plays into that is that Lombardy, which, you know, was by far the most seriously affected region and now is still having a lot of it. It's still having, as we speak, about four or five hundred new cases every day. So Lombardy has really struggled. That has a Lega uh, leader, as does the Veneto. And in the Veneto, there's you know, it's thought to have been handled very, very well. They've been, you know, two case studies of how the same political party can 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 play play the crisis in, in different ways. So Salvini is sort of, you know, this very serious political times call for very serious figures, I suppose. And and I don't think anyone's ever thought Salvini was a serious figure. You know, the last last summer when he was was trying to pull the plug on the government he was constantly being photographed topless dancing with girls in bikinis to sort of you know hip-hop versions of the italian national anthem i mean it was cheese on a stick so he's he, he's lost a lot of credibility the, the leader of the left-wing party zingaretti who you're you know listeners might know as the brother of the actor who plays montalbano um zingaretti went to Milan at the beginning of the crisis saying, come on, we've just got to, you know, power through this. A bit like people say after a terrorist atrocity, you know, we've just got to live our normal lives. That was his reaction. He went to Milan to have an aperitivo and promptly got coronavirus. So, you know, he 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 looked a bit, well, ill and silly for a month or two. And, um, I mean, we, we're constantly asking the biggest question of all, which is, you know, what, what's going to happen, how a country is going to be changed by this experience. And I was really struck by a piece you wrote where you were talking about the, um, uh, not, you know, the benefits, the upsides, not in, you know, not in a glib way, but with some of the good things that, that had come out in terms of changes of perspective and thinking about neglected issues and some of the good things that may come out of it in the future. What, how do you think it, it, it has changed the country and what would you like to see that would be a positive change? I mean, there are lots of big things and little things. I mean, it's interesting that the, the cycle paths around Parma, which should be the ideal cycling city, and in fact, you know, it even has traffic lights for bikes. It's, you know, it is like a little Amsterdam in some ways, but the cycle paths are a joke. You know, you zigzag between, you know, the trees on the boulevard or whatever. Um, so they're all being repainted at the moment, which is great. There is a sense that, you know, the amount of volunteering that's been going on in, in, in not just Parma, but all over Italy has been significant. 
Um, people are only going shopping once a week. They're not traveling. The air is cleaner. You know, there are there are so many advantages to it. But at the same time, you know, it 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 it's, it needs a complete reimagining. I think of how we how we perceive what an economy is and you know if if our economy is reliant on every family bringing home two three four grand every month you know the vast majority of italians are going to be in deep trouble you know wages here are already incredibly depressed you know most people most of my you know i'm I'm mid 40s most of my peers would be ecstatic if they bought home you know two grand a month so you know 24,000 in your mid 40s is is thought to be you know exciting and you've made it so you know wages here are incredibly depressed life is actually not you know when i first moved here 20 years ago i thought it was very very cheap it's you know the cost of living has has gone through the roof so i i think it just needs a complete reimagining of 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 what a what a 21st century economy is italy is interesting because the the level of public debt is colossal you know the public debt is a as a percentage of gdp you know veers between 120 to 150% huge public debt but the private saving is much much greater than it is in in almost every other european country so although you know as all economists know that that the, the public coffers are are in trouble. Actually, a lot of Italians they have tiny wages. <laughs> cost of living is high, but most of them have a couple of houses. You know, most of my peers don't pay a mortgage. It's just a different a different way of structuring the economy to what we have in Britain. And so, I think they will come out of it in a different way to 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 to, to the way Brits will. Another interesting thing is, I think a lot of people have taken on seasonal work in the fields. So Palmer's got the biggest tomato processing um, factory in Europe. It used to be the kind of thing that we all did in our early 20s to get some pocket money, go and pick tomatoes. Now it's, you know, any age. The Italians are picking the tomatoes. They're going up to the hills to, 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 to do the fruit picking, to do whatever farm work there is available, partly because a lot of the Eastern Europeans, the Romanians and the Bulgarians and and so on haven't been able to come in this this season so you know it, it i think there's a lot of humble pie being eaten um but it's quite tasty as well in some ways <laughs> well tobias jones thanks for joining us uh you can read tobias's uh, reports from italy at the guardian and his latest book ultra the underworld of italian football is available from his website tobias-jones.com How is government coping with the pressures of these extraordinary times? What innovations are needed to face the challenges of the strange new world we're in? And what can the past teach us about how to run a country in times of crises such as these? We need to work out a better way of holding accountable organisations actually accountable. At the Institute for Government, we're dedicated to better government. And throughout the lockdown, we're turning our famous debates, panels and discussions into a new listening experience, IFG Live, so that everyone can hear the best ideas and most original thinking for improving the way our government works. We have to be able to do big things fast before a problem is staring us in the face. That's IFG Live from the Institute for Government, now available at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. Now for our segment, To the Barricades, where every week we pick a cause worth driving 250 miles for with no rest stops. (laughs) This week, it's Helen's turn. Um, Hello. Uh, So on Friday, it is the 50th anniversary of the Equal Pay Act, um, which is obviously an incredibly important piece of legislation. There's a year-long Fawcett Society campaign about equal pay. But the trouble is that uh, there's a lot of different things mixed together here. It is now illegal, obviously, to pay people differently for the same work, depending on their sex. One of the things that really persists, however, is feminised sectors get paid very badly. Um, so the one I wanted to talk about was the care sector, which everybody uh, now has has had a big lesson in how 
how wonderful it is. Sarah O'Connor from the FT said it's a dangerous sector as well now. That's the thing that people haven't taken into account. You know, these are the coal miners of today, our care workers. They are people who are putting their lives on the line for a very badly paid job, you know, manual work. Um, so, you know, they are entitled to what George Osborne laughably called the, the living wage, which was just a rebranded national minimum wage. And coming out of this crisis, they should be entitled to a proper living wage. And I think particularly to me, that is important to something to talk about in the week of the anniversary of the Equal Pay Act, because that is an overwhelmingly female dominated sector. Our guest this week is Claire Hanna, SDLP MP for South Belfast. So Claire, um, Jacob Rees-Mogg has been pushing for Parliament to reopen ASAP. When do you think it, 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 should, it should come back? Does it feel sort of safe? Yet. Um, no, it, re- it, it doesn't genuinely. I suppose it's just the different journeys. It's one thing, I suppose, if you're getting driven in by your nanny from the shires or something. But for, for those, you know, those of us who, who have to take planes and trains and um, various different mechanisms, no, it's not. And I think everybody is clear that, yes, you lose some of the flow of debate with the virtual parliament. It's kind of a series of presentations rather than necessarily the kind of um, toing and froing, but there's still a huge amount of it we can do. And it's a really bad, um, I suppose, leadership, if you're saying to people still, um, no doubt some people do need to go to their place of work, but if you're saying you can, if you can work from home, do so. MPs can work from home in, in the main. Um, select committees will continue to operate uh, via Zoom. So, um, yeah, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to make any sense. I think they're going to have to make exemptions uh, for people who are shielding or, or, or whatever. So they're going to have to run a hybrid um, one or other. And I thought they put up a very poor defence. I thought they might come up with some spurious arguments for why um, they, they had to kind of gas the virtual parliament, but they didn't. They just said it's, it's a bit of a pain. Um, to run it in parallel. So, uh, I mean, speaking personally, I, I I don't intend to travel to London um, next month. I, I, you know, I'll, I'll sort of see what what the business um, comes up. And if there are particular bits pertaining to Northern Ireland or, or very close votes, um, I would have to reconsider that. But I, I just, I, I don't think um, it's it's a risk that I should take or, or my family should take um, unnecessarily. And I think, as I say, it's the example that it's setting to other uh, employers and other workers about what you should and shouldn't be pushed into doing. Well, do you think that the unspoken reason for wanting Parliament back is to sort of uh, encourage the rest of the country to open faster, that it's a it's a symbolic thing and the MPs can go, well, you know, we're taking that risk. Well, presumably they wouldn't say they were taking the risk, but, you know, we're ready to go back. So why isn't everyone else? Obviously, they haven't said that out loud. But. Well, yeah, I, th- I think that's definitely in their minds. But the point is, it's going to vary. And I'm not... I'm not a total lockdown hawk in saying that, you know, we can't reopen, you know, some aspects of some uh, workplaces. And as I say, um, for some who who live nearby or drive by car or whatever, um, it is it is suitable. But it's the fact that different sectors, different businesses, different parts of the public sector will all be differentially impacted and they're not allowing that nuance. But yeah, I mean, you know, you could be really cynical about it and say it's this theory that they want the lockdown to unravel so that they can, you know, pin the fallout on, on on people exercising their own discretion but I, th- I think I think that's part of it uh, but like I say I think on the other hand um you know you need to push back in the same way as we will want other people to push back if their employer is putting them in an unnecessarily uh dangerous situation um and we've had to uh, talk for a while now and, and quite a lot of rancor over the idea of schools coming back first week in June um, now there's talk of non-essential shops opening in the middle of June. Um, is that uh, something you expect is going to be kind of UK-wide? And, and do you think that's a reasonable... So, yeah, so obviously we, we, you know, as a devolved region, have a different uh, a different strategy. <laughs> to be fair, it's, it's kind of, you know, echoing uh, much of what's happening uh, in England and down south, albeit with regional specific things. But, it, I mean, there's no... It, uh, it's very clear to me that there's no perfect... Um, exit strategy, there's no perfect public health strategy or there's no perfect economic strategy and it's important that it's not framed as kind of good versus evil and I think there are um, there are already non-essential things, you can still go and buy an ice cream or whatever if you so choose, so there are uh, ways that non-essential businesses can open and I'm not opposed to that, I think the issue is is you know, who, who decides um, what's allowed to open, there needs to be some sort of uh, adjudication mechanism if people feel that they're being put in an unsafe 
um, situation. So I think, I mean, uh, there's no talk here about schools um, reopening or finish at the end of June. And I know in England they, they run slightly later. Um, I, I think there's a strong uh, argument in terms of, you know, the education inequality gap widening. Um, I, I do definitely get that, but it's just, it's not, um, it's not something under discussion here. But I think it's some of it is about the trust and the buy-in, and I suppose very little about what the UK government have done, particularly this affair over the last few days, is giving people that you know that real sense that they've got our best interests at heart and they know what they're doing and and you know this is all very thought out i think it's because of all the missteps to date people um that has made them more suspicious and i suppose less keen to buy into the plan well this has been a, a tale of four nations you know there's been a real sense of, of of each of the four nations doing doing things in their own way how has northern ireland fared relative to england where are there, are there are there's a major I mean, it, it, major points of departure. Yeah, so like, like I say, um, the first couple of weeks, it was, you know, we have to follow London, we have to follow Dublin, blah, blah, blah. And they have managed to chart their own course. Obviously, um, the, the the big issue is managing the fact that we, we, we're on an island uh, and, and that it makes sense to treat it as one epidemiological unit. We did that in foot and mouth, for example, and fared a lot better mm. than um, the other island uh, in that regard because there, there there are fewer points. Some of the things that have benefited Northern Ireland are the things that I normally grumble about, like crab public transport and so on, have meant that this, the, the virus has, hasn't has spread uh, as, as easily. There are dramatic differences in, in, in that regard. I mean, we also have to bear in mind that London holds the purse strings. We, um, while there was kind of Barnet money for each of the devolves to run their own uh, schemes, the, the, the macroeconomic levers are still the job retention scheme and the self-employed uh, support scheme. So we're not in control of those. We, we have to try and dovetail our strategies with that 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 money uh, keeping flowing. It's been one of the better examples of devolution, I think, across the board. And and I think you know Scotland has been a wee bit more nimble and has had opportunities to to slightly um, tweak the messaging. But ultimately, the virus hasn't been as rampant here for 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 a variety of reasons. One, I suppose, there would have been two flights a week maybe into Belfast from Italy, for example, so it wouldn't have come in in such a high load. So we're mirroring it, but I'm I'm uh, I chose the wrong word because Northern Irish people can't say mirror in a an appropriate way. But um, the uh, <laughs> but but but. Uh, there, there will be differences over the, the emergence. We had the situation yesterday where there wasn't a single uh, death on the island of Ireland. So a lot of people are like, could we just put a big glass dome over us now and not let anybody else um, in? But obviously we don't have uh, all of those tools, for better or worse. We mentioned Stormont earlier. Um, were you surprised when Julian Smith was ousted as Northern Ireland Secretary right after he helped negotiate that return? And how does his successor, Brandon Lewis, compare? So I wasn't completely surprised. I mean, as I, but Julian Smith was like your cool sub teacher that was there for one term and everybody really liked them and it made you really interested <laughs> in the subject for a while. And now our boring old teachers back and we're raging. I mean, I suppose people weren't shocked. I mean, it was kind of signaled that he was going to be replaced. And I think it people universally were just saying, this is the contempt Boris Johnson holds us in that the first guy in, you know, probably, I mean, easily the best regarded since Mo Molum, but the first person who's been successful in 15 years and who had genuinely built relationships. I mean, we all, we all really liked him. I mean, I, 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 I didn't imagine a scenario where I'd be in the media praising a, a, a secretary of state, but, um, so we were, we were surprised in that regard. I think, I don't think it was to do with Brexit necessarily. I don't think it had anything to do with the deal that he had just brokered. It's around, uh, the legacy and the kind of, um, justice aspects of the troubles and that stuff is coming at us in the next few months and, and I believe he was out of step uh, with Johnson and that's wh why he got removed. Look, I haven't had that much um, engagement with Brandon Lewis yet, but I will say it's it's pretty clear he's, you know, we, we know what Johnson values. He values uh, loyalty and he value, values people who will uh, hold the line and I don't think that bodes particularly well um, for kind of all the choppiness that we do have ahead. 
And last week we discussed the law change for British and Irish citizens born in Northern Ireland. They'll now be treated as EU citizens for immigration purposes. Does this affect a lot of your constituents? Yeah, I mean, because uh, it was, it was a, bi- a big case here because I suppose it was a- an interpretation of um, the Good Friday Agreement or one of its outworkings that hadn't been dealt with. For me, it kind of shows how living and breathing it is and how... Um, you know, the Good Friday Agreement isn't, look, frame it, put it on the wall. That was 20 years ago. It, it is a toolkit for a lot of the different challenges. And if you look at how we are going to manage the outworkings of Brexit and even how you manage aspects of COVID, there's there's usually a mechanism or a body or, or an answer somewhere within that document. So it has underlined vitally, I think, the principle that you can be British or Irish or both as you so choose. And it's that kind of you know, diversity it's is, is its strength. It has given people, um, so if you're British or Irish, regardless of what passport you hold, it has given people a, a big advantage in immigration terms over uh, a British citizen in England or Scotland or Wales. And I would like to think people in England, Scotland and Wales will demand that levelling up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, because uh, you, you come across quite a lot of cases where people, um, you know, couples are separated due to, um, you know, the really high earning threshold or the savings threshold. So um, it's not it's not a it's not a kind of a mass appeal. There are not that many people it is affected, but it was a, a, an important piece of law to clarify right. and important to reinforce, you know, those basic principles of the Good Friday Agreement and that they're still valuable. And Northern Ireland, obviously, it was such a huge uh, sticking point in the um... Um, you know, the status of Northern Ireland in, in the various Brexit deals that went through, and it was, it was Jilton's compromise on that issue that enabled him to, to pass a deal eventually. Um, now, there's fears that, that coronavirus could be harder to track and trace on the island of Ireland because of changes in data sharing after Brexit. Are there areas like that in which sort of Brexit, the Brexit and coronavirus sort of merge and create a whole other problem. Yeah, I mean, totally. If we thought, I mean, it was going to be challenging managing goods and services across the border, managing a virus, is, uh, an invisible virus is going to be even more so. And, and you'll know that there's, you know, tens of thousands of people who, who cross it routinely. Um, it, it, in that, I just have, have a feeling uh, the, the UK government are going to have to roll back, not to ease things on the island of Ireland, but just all the other um, technical feelings of, of their app. But yeah, I mean, it's going to, it's, it's, it's basically slowed down any potential progress towards implementation of the protocol or kind of finding solutions. And there's a real fear here that, you know, they're just going to roll up uh, the damage of, of no deal with, with the damage of COVID and, and that it will be very difficult to separate or unpick um, th- those aspects. You saw last week, you know, they published the, the tariff schedule and, and kind of documentation on the, the protocol. That to me was kind of phoning it in. The commission had said, you're not, uh, you know, operating in good faith. You don't really intend uh, to, to develop this. And I think they kind of have to put down um, a marker. But yeah, I mean, we, 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 it, it will underline the fact, like Brexit, that we are at a really complex apex in terms of, um, you know, having to having to synthesise two uh, strategies from from London and from Dublin, and uh, and that they're necessarily going to be more complex here. And we haven't got a particularly brilliant record on governance in Northern Ireland, so you're asking for us to um, handle some of the most complex uh, regulatory frameworks, and uh, uh, and that's in a very immature uh, assembly that has been down more than it's been up in the last 20 years. And finally, put bluntly, do you think that this uh, current Westminster government really cares or, or devotes much thought to Northern Ireland? Um, I don't, and I don't say that in a sort of a casual throwaway, oh, the Brits never care about us, but I think this one is uh, uniquely <laughs> detached. I mean, obviously, there was shapes thrown in the last year or two when they depended on, on the DUP um, for votes, but I think the fact that that has shut down so quickly and so completely um, underlined how shallow it was. And, and um, Seamus Mallon, one of the, the Good Friday Agreement negotiators, he always, if you can be bought, you can be sold. And, and it was very clear that that was going on. Um, so no, I, I just, I genuinely, I mean, wasn't it Dominic Cummings who said, as far as I'm concerned, it can fall into the effing sea. And I, I don't think that surprised anybody um, that that was the perception. So if... Um, if basically sorting out um, Northern Ireland, if that was going to put a brakes 
on their big Brexit dream. They're just there's no way that they're going to allow that to happen. And clearly, when you when you you know all the polling that's been done of of Brexiters and of Conservative voters, they don't really care either. So I mean, most of us here, including including people who identify as unionists, don't you know, aren't labouring under the misapprehension that London cares particularly about it. But 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 for the time being, that's the uh, that's the theatre we have to operate in. So it is it is really, really concerning. We we I, I firmly believe it will it will be either a no deal and it will be a death blow to the Northern Irish economy because we do, of course, lose our access to um, or our unfettered access to, to, to the to the market in, in Britain. And while an Irish sea border is marginally less terrible than a border on the island of Ireland, um, it, it, it's still a disaster. It's still fundamentally kind of um, at odds with both the Good Friday Agreement and, and the European, um, you know, ideals and, and, and the free trade that an economy like ours needs. Thanks, Claire Hannah. And that's the show. Thanks to Helen Lewis, Ian Dunt, Tobias Jones and Claire Hannah MP. Finally, our theme song Demon is a Monster by Corner Sharp and some thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello and thanks from me to Olaf, Tim Bowden, Will, John Sills, Melanie Teff, Toby and Janet Crossley. Thanks and best wishes from me to Khalil Damaki, Anita Pierce, Hamstidge, Mac Jordan, Joe Redhorse, Paul Weir and High Juice with a one for the eye but not a second eye. Finally, my thanks to Kate Maravan, Jeremy Zinni, Philip Gilbert, Hugh Macmillan V, Erica Hodges, Lily Toff and Trisha Cusden. Stay safe, even if you're a government advisor, and we'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Doreen Linsky with Ian Dunt and Helen Lewis. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.